in my house, I, I think half my furniture is from Sweden, uh, Ikea, that is. And I uh, uh, don't know if you've ever been to Ikea, but when you go to Ikea, there's one up in Tampa. I love Ikea for a couple of reasons. The stuff looks pretty cool and contemporary, and the second reason, it's really cheap. You know I was going to say that, right? And, uh, you know, it scratches easy and all that, but you don't care because it was cheap. I mean, if you bought something really expensive and it scratches, like, oh, no, you scratched something expensive. Like, you know, sometimes you just scratch it and like, hey, no problem. I'll go buy another one for 30 bucks because that one doesn't look good anymore. And then when you go to Ikea, there's an upper floor and there's a lower floor. And the upper floor is the showroom. And that's where, you know, these guys who build something every day, they know how to do it really well because they've built 4,300 cabinets, the, the same ones over and over, and, and they hang stuff in Ikea that looks really neat. By the way, it doesn't all work in your house because you don't have metal bars hanging, you know, across your ceiling. Stuff that's hanging, you know, you'll get home like, that was so cool in the store. I don't have any metal bars. How do I hang it? But at any rate, another day, another story. But so you go in and you see the thing you want. And you get a number and you write it down and it's beautiful and it's got lighting on and everything. Then you go downstairs and you go to the warehouse where there are shelves and shelves of really brown boxes. And I've done this a million times because I've built a lot of Ikea stuff. And every time I go to slide that box onto the four-wheel cart, I'm like, I get this sick feeling like, Boy, this don't look like it did upstairs. And the, and the chance of it looking like that in my house is real low. So you get home and, you know, you, you open up the instructions and there are no words, right? If you've ever built anything by Ikea, there, there are no words. There's this guy, the, the, the Ikea man. Uh, that's him. Now... They, they have this stuff all over the world, so I'm thinking, well, they're saving more money. They don't have to translate the, you know, instructions all over the world, so you get the Ikea man. And he looks really happy, and you'd like to punch him a couple times, you know, especially when it gets late at night. And you're looking at you know, these, these wooden, what are they called, uh, pegs or dowel, what? Dowels, Dowels thank you. <laughs> and it's like there are some this size, and there's some this size and you have to put the right one in or else it won't i mean the last thing i had had drawers and everything man and the, and they it shows you like all at the same time like all the pieces and all these little dowels and screws and everything all at the same time with all these arrows and and there's that stupid man smiling and telling you that here are the only tools you'll need to construct this so I was thinking, wow, if I were to write my own Ikea manual, it would look like this. So you, you'd have this, and then, of course, the next one is like that. The, the, the man gets a little puzzled, you know, just slightly like, hmm, now it's, you know, it's about 8.15 at night. You've been at it, you know, for five hours trying to build a shelf, and, and you're like, ah, man. So what they tell you to do is this next step. Here's what you do. You call Ikea. Now, in all the instructions, literally, there's that, that little piece right there, call Ikea. Now, here's the, here's the big reveal. So, you know, if they knew you could build it, why would they need to put that? You know, you call Ikea, because everybody's calling Ikea because nobody can get it, right? So then it's like you're on hold for an hour and 15 minutes, and then they closed. Now it's 9.15 p.m., and then, it's the, then if I were making the manual, I'd put this as the, like, rah, 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 rah. I hate Ikea. 
Then your wife says in the next room, honey, is everything okay? She knows it's not okay. She knows exactly what's going on. And then, you know, you build the thing and you end up, well, I do at least, with a couple extra shelf parts. And like, where do they go? Well, it's so cheap, I just break it right across my neck. And then the thing, most of the drawer shut. And then, um, but all the time, at least what I'm being driven by is that picture of the showroom. This is what it looked like. And in my house, it could look the same. And I could, you know, put lighting on it and all that. And and, uh, all the anguish of going through all these details are being driven by the end result. You see, I think God is the same. I think that he has, is involved in more of the details of our lives than we would give him credit for. When he created this world, it's amazing. When you read scripture verses like Isaiah 40, check this out. In Isaiah 40, the ultimate Ikea person, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. In other words, the oceans are not random. The rivers, the seas, the lakes, God has measured them. In his hand. Or with the breadth of his hands, he's actually marked off heaven. I have a very good friend. We had uh, some time together this week. She's about uh, 70 something. She's a seasoned musician. Many of you know I have a musical background. Tremendous. She's played on Broadway and for a number of years, etc. And, and um, she's very open and proud of the fact that she's an atheist. And so we've had many very healthy and, and uh, exciting dialogues and conversations. And of course, someone who believes that God is non-existent will always tend to say, well, if, if there is a God, then how come this is happening? And then there's a string of bad things in the world. I'm like, I can understand your logic on that. But here, here's something for you to think about. I'm thinking about emotions. I'm thinking about colors, thinking about palm trees. I'm thinking about the wind channels that cross this planet, thinking about the depths of the ocean. I'm thinking about mosquitoes and kangaroos and endless galaxies that humans cannot fathom or even measure or even see for that fact. I'm thinking about this rock that we call planet Earth that somehow mysteriously floats into space. And if you know anything about it, if we were just a slight bit closer to the sun, we'd all burn up. If we were a slight bit further from the sun, we'd all freeze to death. That it rotates at the exact spot that it needs to rotate to give us rain and seasons and and all those things and things grow and they continue to die and grow in this beautiful reproductive cycle and I looked at her and said you actually have more faith than I do because if you believe that that came from a fish which came to a monkey to a PhD or wherever I still ask you where the fish came from. And if you've studied, which most people haven't, evolution, there are gaping holes in it that make no sense. 
Even the founder, Darwin, questioned it. You have more faith than I do because if you can believe that all of this, for some reason this week I was thinking about the spinal column. I think of so many exciting things in life. The (laughs) spinal column. Consider the spinal column. It is a work of brilliance. You make one if you don't think so. How did that spinal column with all the nerves and doodads coming out of it? See, that's what would happen if I made one. Let's put some doodads on it. And then it would be like, you know. Such an ingenious creation. Just that one little aspect. A spinal column. My logic... Not even being a Christian would say it. There is a God. There is a designer. There is an editor involved in this. At least before I became a Christian in my 20s, I still believed that there was a God. I I believe that the scripture is right. You've got to be foolish. You've got to be foolish if you say there is no God respectfully delivered. God is so many things to us. He's holy. He's a savior. He's powerful. He's a creator. May I invite you today to see him perhaps from a different light. God, the editor. You see, it's when you read the fine print of the scripture, that's the part sometimes that you'll fall asleep during because it's the details and, but if you take a little time with it and you begin, it's, you, we can really marvel at how God was really in the editing details of certain things. Let me explain. Like Noah's ark. So when Noah built the ark, it wasn't if God said, you know, I've got to hit the reset button. And so uh, we've got to save the animals. And so what I need you to do is build a boat. And so go for it. Well, Noah... We have no indication that his profession was a boat builder. He would have needed a little help editing, designing with the architecture, the engineering of the thing. So God jumps in with these details. And he says to Noah in Genesis 6, uh, chapter, uh, verse 14, Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. That's the kind of wood I want you to use, specifically cypress wood. Make rooms in it. And here's how I want you to put it all together. Coat it with pitch. Inside and outside. You know, I'm watching the Bible uh, movies and everything, and the ark is leaking. I'm like, I don't think so, just to be honest with you. I, I think God had it together. But anyway. <laughs> Jeez. It's like they put the cross together, and it's like it's going to fall apart or something. You know what I mean? We always got to make it a little more scintillating, but whatever. Um, it's like, you know, Noah getting bit with an alligator on the ark. It's like, just, oh, it's Hollywood. We got to make it. At any rate, I respect it. I think it's cool. But at any rate, you just got to watch the details. It's fine. You can watch it. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long. Exactly. And I want you to make it exactly 75 feet high and 40 feet or wide and 40 feet high. Make a roof for it. Watch this. And finish the ark within 18 inches of the top. You're thinking, God, are you? Why so detailed with all these what seem to be 
minute points of the kind of wood and the pitch is inside, outside, the inches. Put a door on the side of the ark and make, make lower and middle and upper decks. You see, here's the deal. The things that often seem mundane to us, don't think for a second that God is not in them. David, King David, went to build a temple. And God said, you're not going to build it. You're not going to build the worship space. Your son is going to build it, Solomon. And so in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 12, David gave Solomon the plans, watch, that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple, all the surrounding rooms, the treasuries of the temple of God, for the treasuries of the dedicated things, all these details down to the curly cues and the, and the type of material and the gold and the dimensions. And so um, all this, David said to his son, I have in writing from the hand of the Lord upon me. And he gave me understanding, watch, in all the details of the plan. Now, if you're David, you're thinking... God, how come I can't build it? And why all these details? I got a bunch of guys that are builders. They know what to do. No, God says, I've got a specific design. Stick with me. Watch this. Moses goes up on the mountaintop to spend time with God. Now, if I'm Moses, you know what I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to get God getting down to the rich stuff. You know how Christians are, the deep stuff. Tell me about the end of time. How, how does Asia work in with the end of time? You know how people really love to get into all that? And the Antichrist, who is it, who is it, who is it? You know, we're just so intrigued by this. And tell me about the, how, all the things about creation. How did you do it when, when you spoke the world? Give, you know, give me the, all the deep stuff. God said, let me tell you how to make curtains. That's what happened. <laughs> Moses went up to the top of the mountain. He said, I'm going to teach you how to make curtains. Like, really? Kind of disappointing. I thought it was going to be a little deeper than this. You know, the tabernacle was kind of the mobile worship center for these guys because they were moving all around. So it was constructed of probably from, probably from Sweden is where it was from. <laughs> it's probably Ikea. You know, they had poles and rings and tapestries and cloths and all this stuff so that they could dismantle it and then carry it off and take it to somewhere else. And then they worship and stay there for a while and then dismantle and move it. That's the tabernacle in case you didn't know. Moses is up on top of the mountain and says, Then God saying, Have them make a sanctuary, a tabernacle for me, and I will dwell among them. Now make this tabernacle, watch, and all its furnishings, the basins, the altars, the candlesticks, all these things. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. I'm going to be your editor. You see, when God comes to me and I'm expecting something profound and he says, Steve, I'd like to talk to you about the way you're eating. I'm like, I'm I was expecting something different than that. But I often find that God is like, no, I'm going to get to some practical things here. We're going to do some curtain making lessons, Steve. I'm not, in fact, you don't even know, need to know about the end of time. I got it covered. What you don't have covered, maybe is watching out for your family. Like, can I start there? Can I give you some parenting lessons? And it may not come only from me. I might send someone to you. Are you open to being edited? Because 
I've got a showroom picture in mind. Now watch this. I could take any of these things. You may be thinking, where in the world are we going with boats and temples and tabernacles? But watch this. I could take any of these, pick any of these. I'm going to pick the tabernacle. Now you're Moses. You went up to the top of the mountain. You're expecting deep things. And of course there were some deep things. But all of a sudden God's given you all these details about curtains and poles and rings and basins and altars and all that. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, all the way back, Exodus is over here. The book of Hebrews, almost to the end of the Bible, we read this truth. The sanctuary that was built by Moses in Hebrews 8 is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned, and this, then that word also is instructed, or I'm going to use the word edited. This is why Moses was edited when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain because, see, you think it's just about these poles and curtains and your everyday junk that, like, it doesn't seem all that big of a deal. But God is saying, oh, I got a showroom in heaven that I'm, you're replicating even though you don't know it. That is exciting. At least it is for me, as you can tell. <laughs> Here's why. When we think that God created us so specifically and uniquely and beautifully and, and all those things, and we're going through the, the poles and curtains and the junk of our life, don't think for a minute when God comes to edit us that he's got something greater in mind. See, we resist him here. We miss this. We go to the lower room and like, oh, no, it's a box. I can't build a box. I can't blah, blah, blah. That's Hebrew. And we're like, God's like, well, you're never going to get to the showroom of what I want in your life. And God has an amazing picture that he wants to show to us and live through us and create. We're in a collection now called Billity. As you know, if you've been around for the last month or so. And basically, in a nutshell, here's the deal. In the American culture, it is my strong belief that we need to amp up our game. We need to change our thoughts. We need to consider never, never eroding any of our convictions or the truth of Scripture, ever. But I do believe that we need to go back to ancient truth. And that is when Christ said, I pray that they will be one so that the world will believe. So that we get authentic. We get real. We get down and dirty in relationships. And part of that requires certain abilities in order to advance the ball down the field. We're talking in terms of a, a battlefield or a playing field. And and. For, for the sake of Christ, God forbid that we would fumble the ball, much less stand still. We are charged with advancing the ball. What that will require is for us 
to be in sync with one another. We have to play team ball. That requires sinkability. It requires durability. You can't skin your knee and go home crying. If you get offended, have the guts to go to the person and say, you offended me. Let's work this out like the people of God that we claim that we are rather than sticking our tail between our legs and running. We cannot advance the ball if we're weenies. Can I say that? All right. (laughs) Soldiers and football players are not weenies. You can't play the NFL. It's right in the writing. You read the NFL. You can't be a weenie and advance the ball. We, we, We have to gird ourselves. And I submit to you today that unless we're able and open to editing in our life, then we cannot advance the ball collectively or individually. Now, when we say, God, edit me, search my heart, O God, that's not so bad. Where it becomes tough is when another person comes to us and say, can I have a word with you? That is where the editing gets a little tough. I always have some books going. There's a great book called Eleven by uh, a man named Leonard Sweet. Eleven Indispensable Relationships You Can't Be Without. His first chapter is about being edited. And so Leonard writes these words. Life is a handicap event. I like that. In other words, if you play golf like I do, my handicap is 50. And that means... (laughs) I get 50 extra strokes or something like that. I'm horrible. I, I, I intentionally hit mine in the woods so that when nobody's looking, I can throw it at the green. And so if, you're, if you don't play well, you know, you get a handicap. Well, all of us in life are handicapped to a degree. And so life is a handicap event. We cannot get to the end zone, our destination, without the help of others. We just can't do it. And the reason for that is... With the, out, with the outcome that we're heading for, we can't see from all angles. That's why when the quarterback hikes the ball, he's surrounded by other guys that are protecting him so he can plan himself and focus. If a quarterback said, hike, and he's got to do this all the time and look around, he can never get to his intended job. Make sense? He's got to have people around him that say, hey, you, you're not seeing something. No joke. In the first service, after right about this point, someone said, hey, all this time your mic's been off. Hey, thanks for letting me know. So I started over. Good morning. My name is Steve McCoy. <laughs> I was unaware my mic was off until my wife came up. She walked right up the aisle and said, hey, your mic is off. 22 minutes into the thing. Unaware. That's the way life is. Another great book. I'm right in the middle of it. Relational Intelligence by a guy named Steve Saccone. Wonderful book. Watch this. Steve writes this. Because it is impossible to see ourselves accurately from every vantage point, we need to learn how to access the perception of those around us. A very difficult thing to do, by the way. We need mirrors in the form of the people in our lives who can help us see from a variety of angles and allow us to see ourselves accurately oh wow is that one painful is it not i mean painful 
I don't care if you're Charles Dickens or Ludwig von Beethoven. They all had editors. They've all had editors. Every single one. And I, I love the way that Leonard Sweet puts this because in the church world, we use this word, uh, these words, accountability partner. Nothing wrong with that. But we use it a lot. And I intentionally didn't use words that we use a lot because we snap into an image of what we already think we know that to be. He points out something I think very wise. And he says a lot of times when you have an accountability partner, it's all about keeping you from doing wrong things or stepping off the line. Not always that way, but it often leans in that direction, which is not entirely bad. What he would say is we need editability partners because the difference is an editor looks at Beethoven and says, I know it's a great work, but if we took this note out and this measure out, it will even be greater. You see, that's the heart of God. He's not a wrist slapper like you're wrong again, Steve, but take this away and we'll even have a greater masterpiece. See, an editor is trying to excavate and extract the best out of a person see i um have a music background many of you know i started piano lessons in june of 1966 and in 1966 i began 1967 i was still taking piano lessons after my first year and they're one-to-one times you go in every week of the year one-to-one sessions And I took piano lessons in 66 and 1967 and 1968 and 69. I took lessons in 1970, year-round, 1971 and 1972. I took lessons in 1973 and 1974. I was still taking lessons in 1975, 1976, 1977. In 1978, I was still taking piano lessons. It's an exciting life, is it not? And then in 1979, I was still taking piano lessons. In 1980, in 1981, in 1982, in 1983, I took lessons. In 1984, nonstop, year-round, one-to-one, editing my playing. Here's what you could do better. Here's what you don't need to do. Where was I? 82, 83, I was taking lessons. 84, I was taking lessons. 85 and 86 and 87, 1988, and 1989, 1990, 1991, 1992, It could be better if you just did it this way. Now, in the music world, on the resumes of important people, there are two things that are listed. Here's the school that I went to, and here's the teacher that I had. Because in the music world, if you're not in the music world, you look like, okay, whatever. You study with so-and-so. But in the music world, everybody knows, oh, Leon Fleischer at Peabody. Oh, you study with Fleischer? Woo, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. I know it's not a big deal right now. You don't care, but it's a big deal. You pay a lot of money for it and whatever. And so 
you, you have this on your resume. And you, so, you, so I studied with a guy from, uh, from Juilliard. His name was Maurice Henson. And anybody in the, in the music world, in the classical music world, if you say I studied with you know, Maurice Henson, of course, you kind of, you know, I studied with Maurice Henson. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> they were like, whoa, Maurice Henson. He was, you know, just international figure of performing and a scholar. Lousy teacher, be honest with you. Now, he's not alive anymore, so I, I go with that. Here's the deal. When you reach a really high level, it's kind of masochistic in a way. You're coming and you say, edit me. I'm paying you a lot of money to tear me up and make me better. It's just kind of you know, like working with a trainer when you're really serious, like give it to me harder, right? You're like, huh. So you go in. So my first lesson with this guy, I'm sitting there at the piano, and, and I'm, I've worked really hard on my piece. First lesson, trying to impress the guy. And so I'm playing. And while I'm playing, he's sitting behind me. And I'm hearing him just writing. And inwardly, my masochistic lambling, and oh, it's gonna be, he's going to tear me to shreds and edit me. I finish, and he gives me the music back. There's nothing written in my score. I'm like, what? Well, he's so well-known and I'm respecting. It's a kind of a guru respect you have in this world. And you think, well, I won't say anything about it. You know, it's kind of weird. But next week, same deal. Clean score. Week after week after week until finally, I'm like, what's he doing back there? You know what he's doing? He was doing a research project for himself. I'm like, I want a refund. I'm supposed to be edited. You see, as Christians, we've lost sight of, I'm supposed to be edited. And the three years I studied, I climbed and climbed all those years and taking piano. You know what happened in those three years? Wow, like that. You know, people ask me, why do you think the church is going like this? And kind of down. Because we're too chicken to be edited. We wear our feelings on our sleeve that if you edit me, I don't think you ought to say that. And I'm out of here. Honestly. We are supposed to be edited. So we're paying for. <laughs> then I moved to my final teacher. She was about 70 years old. Brilliant. The very first lesson, it takes about nine months to, to learn and memorize classical music, ready to perform. First lesson, I walk in, hugely difficult pieces. Here's how we're going to roll, here's what we're doing. I walk out, I'm getting ready to walk out of my first lesson. She goes, oh, by the way, Steve, I meant to tell you, I allow no music in my studio. Memorize it before you come back next week. Suddenly, bar set up high. Every week for seven years, I left her lessons and I wrote pages because she was invested in editing and trying to make a concert pianist out of someone. I'm going to hold the bar high. All that the church would have the guts and the fortitude and the honesty and the end result in mind Forget the pain of what's happening in the moment. 
if we look and are driven by the final outcome, we would be a masterpiece. If we're going to advance the ball on this playing field, we must be open to being edited by others without walking, without getting our feelings hurt. Oh, easier said than done. I'm thinking in the scripture. Of all those men and women that God worked with, Moses, think about how much the guy was edited, honestly, chiseled, until he became the humblest man on the planet. God's end goal. Think about Abraham, who culture had given up on the reproductive area of life. And yet God saw a nation. He had the end picture in mind. I think of Peter, the guy that said to Christ, I'll fall you to the death. And Christ said, I've got to edit that, man. No, you won't. Just being honest. I mean, honestly, no joke. If I were Christ and I had hired Peter, I would have done a Donald Trump. You fired. (laughs) A lot of times, probably in the first month, right? The guy kept screwing it up. But but Christ saw (laughs) a showroom piece. That's why he's not giving up on you. You may look in the mirror and say, I'm a mess. God sees a showroom. If you're only open to what he might do in your life, if you're edited. I mean, Peter was the guy that Christ said, get behind me, Satan. You have nothing of God in your mind. You're only thinking of earthly things. Peter was the guy that after he'd seen and lived with Christ for three and a half years, saw the resurrection, all that, went back to fishing and gave up. Christ, the editor, came after him. I love Christ for that. Thank you, God, for not giving up on my incomplete piece of cheap furniture that you see the Ikea showroom, man. Thank God for that. You see... As Peter moved through life, Jesus now had to edit him in even a deeper way after the resurrection. Pete, I know that you're only thinking that this whole thing because your dad, your granddad, and his great, your great-granddad and all that, it was only for the Jews. I know, I know that. I don't know if you noticed or not, I hung out with some Gentiles, I hung out with some females, I hung out, you know, all those. You probably didn't catch that, obviously, because you're still thinking that this whole thing with faith in God is limited to one kind of people. And I've got to edit you and open up your mind. And Peter's like, no, God, I'm not doing that. So even after Christ had left the planet, the apostle Paul was the guy that came to him and said, I need to edit you, Peter. And this is going to be a little painful. The guy, Peter, is still being edited even after Christ left and Christ had to send a a Paul to his face. Watch. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. When Peter, Paul is speaking, when Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face. I got to edit you, my friend Peter, because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men 
came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. He was kind of catching up with it. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of the religious people. And he retracted. And he put himself in a position of needing to be edited. The other Jews, guess what? When I say this to my son all the time. You know what happens when you throw a rock in the water, right? Yes, Dad, ripples. Whatever you do affects other people. The other Jews joined Peter in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, I mean, when you, when you read the word even, like even Barnabas, like everybody in, the, in that culture, like we're like, okay, Barnabas. But back then, obviously, like even Barnabas was led astray. And then everybody was like, Barnabas? Right? You got to say that after, you know, even Barnabas. Barnabas? Oh, yeah, Barnabas. <laughs> Why? Because Peter needed editing. See, it is not, I, I think of Peter's life, it couldn't have been fun. There's nothing fun about being edited. I know that. When someone comes to me and says, Steve, you think it's noble? You think it's spiritual? That you're working 80 hours a week? Oh, you think so, Mr. Martyr? Ask your wife. Oh, we're down to curtain making now. <laughs> I was hoping for something a little more profound. No, we're going to start with this. Ask your kids how they're grooving with your martyrdom. Well, I'm, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Maybe you need a drink offering, dude. Take some time to spend with, with your kids. See, I shared that with you about a month ago, right? Because I feel like if I'm willing to share it, you're like, oh, okay, well, I, that's cool. I've got stuff too. It's okay to have stuff. Life is a handicap event, and we need others to come in. But watch. Proverbs 11, 14. Many advisors make victory. Sure. This is how we get the showroom version. If, with, if we have many advisors, then we, then we now we, we, we've got it. We, are, we, we have the ability, the capacity to become what God wants us to become. You see, God kept working on Peter like, Peter, you got you to gotta think, I got to edit you, man. You're only thinking narrowly. You're only thinking it's the Jews that can get in and not the non-Jews. And so you remember he sent him a vision and he said, here's, I'm going to let this blanket down. There's all kind of animals that Jewish people would never eat. And he said, Peter, I'm going to ask you to eat that, right? And here's what happens in Acts 10. Surely not. No way. Peter, I need to edit you. Nope. Had God stopped he would have never gotten Peter to a place of any place different. Does that make sense? Peter said, no, I can't do it. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. I just, you can't edit me. I've worked 80 hours all my life. And my dad did too. Yeah, maybe that's part of the problem. Can't throw a rock in the water and not let it ripple. The voice spoke to him a second time. Don't call anything impure, Peter, that God's made clean. This happened three times. Happened that, that. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's the hard part. There's always a hard part. Here it is. Fine print. In the American church, those that are open to being edited 
It's about 10%. I'm praying that that will increase. It's hard to speak a word of edit in the church today. And I attribute it to one of the primary reasons that things are heading this way. You see, if you're a football player on the field and you don't, if you're not running the play like we call it in the huddle, you should expect to be edited by the coach or by the quarterback or somebody. Dude, you ran the play wrong. And our goal, my goal is not to tell you how you run the play wrong. I, I love you, but we're trying to score. You see, as a church, we're trying to score. And if our skin is so thin that we cannot be edited, we will never, ever score and advance the ball on this playing field. You hear the charge. I can sense it. What that takes is, God, I need to deal with something. Now, in the book of Proverbs, you'll see this approach over and over and over. There'll be two phrases in a proverb. And you, it's usually one of two things. It's like, here's a phrase, and then I'm going to amp up the same thing. Like, God's word is sweet, comma. It's sweeter than honey. You know, so I'll say something, and then, whoo, just say the, say the same thing, but amped up. Or there'll, there'll be a statement, and then the opposite of that statement, a contrasting approach. So uh, the, the Bible, the proverb will say something like, the man who works hard will reap the benefits of his labor, comma, the lazy man will die in poverty. Something like that. You got it? Now watch this. Proverbs 13, 10. Only, don't miss that word. The only way, only by pride comes contention. That means when we get fussy, there's only one ingredient in that recipe. It's pride. It's ego. Steve, I got to edit you, dude. I'm seeing some... Things in your life, not spending time with your boy. Wait, who, who? Who do you think you're talking about, right? You know what that is. We all know what it is. We can all smell it, especially smell it in other people. What's that new cologne you got, pride? (laughs) Only by pride comes contention, but the opposite of that, wisdom is found in those who take advice. Peter, the guy who said the Gentiles are out near the end of his life, writes his first letter to churches. I want you to see where they're at. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, he speaks of himself. We sign our, our letters at the end. In that culture, they sign them at the beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To who? To God's elect, the ones that God has, has drawn strangers in the world scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by His blood. Those churches, all Gentiles. And God is saying, showroom. It only took you about 60 years, man. But you were open to being edited. And for that reason, Peter opened the world and his rock in the water created huge ripples where non-Jewish people got in. See, all the time that Jesus was editing Peter, he had this end result 
in mind. Don't underestimate it. So last Saturday, I'm working on fatherhood. And every night I'm doing good by shutting her down at six. Progress report. I wish I could say that it was easy for me, but it's not. But for a month now, I'm like, going to do it. Now it's starting to become a habit. Now I just knock off at nine in the morning. I'm doing, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go to six, shut her down. Every other Saturday, I have my act group. In, the, in, in between act groups, I'm like, going to do some adventures with the boys, my eight and nine-year-old boys. So last Saturday, we went to Rothenbach Park there at the, all the way into the end of the B Ridge. They got a really cool bike trail. We packed up our bikes, the three boys, uh, me <laughs> and the boys. We're all boys. And <laughs> I've been there before. There are gators kind of out in the wild there. Last time I was there, there was a, I saw about a six to eight foot snake. And uh, I'm like, hey, you want an adventure? Here we go. So we packed up the bikes. We went out there and we rode and just had a, an incredible time. It's the first time. And they're eight and nine. Come on. Right? Come on. After that, we went to Wendy's and uh, got them a couple of Frosties. And we started making a film. We had a film idea. You ever seen those survival shows? We like, hey, let's make a survival movie. Only it was like a spoof on a one that we were gonna like be in like winter coats in in Wendy's, and we'd be like hovering around like a cup of coffee, and I was just kind of got stupid and silly. But we were like had this idea for this film. Last Sunday after the after church, Easter, my eight year old came and said, "Hey, Dad, can we do that boy thing again?" But an hour later, he comes to me and said, Hey, Dad, can we do that boy thing again? No exaggeration. Ten times last Sunday. Can we do that boy thing again? You know what he asked me when he was going to bed last night? Hey, Dad, after church, because I had a group yesterday, this afternoon, can we do that boy thing again? Thank God for editors. Thank God for editors. Father, thank you for who you are and who you send to us to edit our lives. At the time, God, it can seem mundane parenting, time management, curtains, poles, and rings. And yet you have a tabernacle in heaven, a picture in the upper room, in the showroom. At times, God, the scalpel seems painful, cutting through our encrusted pride and yet post-surgery is beautiful. So, Father, today, when we say, search our heart, O God, K 
Can we be specific, God, and ask you to search it for pride, for ego, for the unwillingness to be edited by those who are closest to us? to be edited by the mysterious movement and communication of the Holy Spirit. Can I pray, God, today for this church, our heart, our passion, is to be part of a team that's advancing the ball. God knows that many, you know that many of us are tired and fatigued and actually sick of the ball going backwards or even just staying or being fumbled. And if we're going to advance this, God, we'll have to have certain abilities, one being editability. Today, Father, I pray for the openness, the courage for editors and help us to see, God, that you've created masterpieces in us and that if we're only open to words of editing that is the only way we can reach the destination of the showroom Father thank you for intimately knowing us so much that you know exactly how to send a Paul to a Peter and a Nathan to a David You know exactly who that person is that we'll listen to. So, Father, we end this time by worshiping you, the great editor, not only of this universe, but the destiny of our lives and the destiny of your church. And for that reason, God, we give you our deepest thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.